Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. The Lord be with you. Reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Here is a true child of Israel. There is no duplicity in him. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. And he said to him, Amen, amen, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Gospel of the Lord. Like I said at the beginning of Mass today, we celebrate the feast day of the Holy Archangels, and I had about 10 homilies in my head that I wanted to preach this morning, so I'm going to try and get it down to like three, okay? So, um, over this past weekend, I had a really awesome opportunity to attend the what was called the life profession of two of my dear sisters, my dear friends, they're Byzantine nuns who became fully professed uh, nuns. So in the Byzantine tradition... Um, when a nun becomes a fully life-professed nun, she takes the title mother. So it was the life profession of Mother Natalia and Mother Petra. And it happened at the Dormition of Mary uh, uh, Byzantine Church in Parma. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever been to a Byzantine church or an Orthodox church or been inside any of the churches or Eastern uh, brothers and sisters, but they are exquisite just covered in beautiful icons and images and all of it, and their divine liturgy, what they call the Mass, the divine liturgy is just so much more ornate. I was showing Deacon Rich the worship aid that was used for this three and a half hour long liturgy this past Sunday, and it was 60 something pages, okay? 60 pages. It was unbelievable. All right. But their divine liturgy, it's so over the top, it's so beautiful, the vestments are so ornate, so just glittered in gold and colors and the exuberant usage of incense and all the the thurifers they've got, or the the incenses, they've got bells on them, so it's just, it's over the top, it's so beautiful. There's the candles, the processions, the chanting, the repetition of phrases, all of it. It's just unbelievable. Like the divine liturgy in the Eastern tradition, in a way that isn't quite highlighted in our Latin Western tradition, but the divine liturgy in the East, it's, it's stretching, it's straining, it's trying to make visible the invisible reality that we're entering into. Right? Like as Christians, we believe in the, in terms of the kingdom, we believe in the already and the not yet dimension of the kingdom. That because of Christ, because of the Incarnation, he has established the kingdom already. 
and also not yet. It's still in progress. I would think in the Latin church, the Western church, we emphasize, we put the accent mark on the not yet. And the Eastern church, they put the accent mark on the already. So their worship, you really get the sense that you're entering into the heavenly court, surrounded by the angels, surrounded by the saints, making visible with the icons, the processions, all of it. You're making visible the invisible. Like we heard in that responsorial psalm we just today, in the presence of the angels, I will sing your praises. You get that sense a lot more, I would say, in the Eastern Rite liturgy, the divine liturgy. We are in the presence of the angels, singing the songs of the angels, singing the songs of the saints. So back in the 8th and ninth centuries, taking it back, there was arising in the church what was known as the iconoclast heresy, especially in the East, in the Byzantine Empire. Iconoclasm literally means smashing of icons. It became this thought that these images were heretical, right? Which is not based in Scripture, right? Jesus himself is the image of the invisible Father. So you had this smashing of icons, this reduction of the liturgy, trying to get rid of icons, those sorts of things. The same kind of spirit is also present in the Western church at different points in history within the last hundred years or so. We've had our own kind of strain of iconoclasm. This, we're maybe not smashing icons, but we have done a number to our churches, stripping our churches, removing statues, whitewashing sanctuaries that were once exquisite and so beautiful. Churches that used to be highly ornate, highly ornamental, have been stripped and simplified and whitewashed. I remember I used to help uh, celebrate Mass for the Carmelite nuns up in uh, Cleveland Heights. And their chapel was, there was like nothing in it. There was, there was a bare altar and bare candlesticks and a very bizarre modern crucifix. And I remember seeing an image from the archives of what that chapel used to look like. And I was so saddened and so stunned. Iconoclasm had its way. And what's been the result of this? In the Western church, what's been the result of this? Has it increased faith? Or has it impoverished faith in people? I'd argue it's been the latter. Because the thing is, like when we rid, when we rid our worship, and we rid our sanctuaries, when we rid our worship spaces, when we get rid of the visible signs of the invisible realities, our imaginations progressively become bereft of those invisible realities. Like, as human beings, we need the visible signs to like, help remind us of the invisible realities. Like, the statues on either side of the Blessed Sacrament in the chapel there, those statues of the angels are visible signs that here among us are angels adoring the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Right? You get rid of those statues, you get rid of those images, all of a sudden it just begins to slowly fade and dissipate, right? And we begin to find that believing in all of that invisible stuff just becomes untenable, a bit medieval, a bit superstitious. That's what I find in younger generations, people of my generation, people of uh, yeah, the kids in the school, right? We need our minds to be bombarded by the visible imagery of the invisible reality. All right, so why am I bringing all of this up on the Feast of the Archangels? Well, because... I mean, like so much in our, in our, that we believe in so much in our faith, the angels are invisible realities. They're invisible beings. They're pure spirit, right? Which does not mean that they're less real. In fact, it means that they're more real. 
Like the authentic Christian worldview, the authentic Christian worldview is one that sees this world, this world that has like trees and garbage trucks and toddlers and airplanes and ponds and soccer matches and all of these things. The Christian worldview is one that sees this world as permeated, saturated with the invisible spiritual world, right? Invaded by, filled with the invisible realities. Like these angelic beings are in and amongst us. It's not just portrayed in movies, right? We know this, but like this is the reality. This is what we believe, that the, the battle between the fallen angels, whose scripture says, we just heard, those fallen angels, they came to earth. That's where they went. The battle, for the, the battle between the fallen angels and God's holy angels is being played out all around us. And so the thing is, like, art and iconography and statues and, and mosaics and stained glass, all of it, is meant to help form our imaginations correctly, to have in our minds the truths of these invisible realities. What struck me so much in like, contemplating these archangels today, thinking about Gabriel, Raphael, and Michael, that so the church speaks of the, the nine choirs of angels, the, 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 the first three, the cherubim, the, the seraphim, cherubim, and thrones, those are the ones who are principally ordered towards the worship of God. Right? Their focus, their mission is God. The next, the next three, the, the dominions, powers, and principalities, those are the ones who have authority in some ways over um, the ruling of the universe, if you can put it that way. But the archangels have a special attention, a focus on earth and humanity in particular. Their missions like touch the ground, so to speak. They touch the earth. Michael, in his battle with Satan, the angelic army fights against these fallen beings who are thrown down to earth. The battle is happening around us, on earth, in our hearts. Gabriel bends the knee before earth's finest flower, before Mary. Raphael, who comes and touches the eyes of Tobit. It's, it's, it's an attention towards the earth. I just wanted us to like reflect again this morning that our faith in the archangels is not just like an interesting novelty, but it, it really is at the heart of the Christian claim that the invisible God is made visible through the incarnation. Right? We believe in this invisible reality, but it's made visible through the physical. The angels come among us. They are around us, these invisible powers. So let's call upon the holy archangels today to intercede for us and to continue to touch the earth of our lives today. Amen.